What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome back. Today's episode is going to be brought to you by Mystery Ranch, built for the mission. And if you guys haven't been rocking one of their Fireline packs for quite some time now, well, you're probably doing it wrong. Yeah, your back probably hurts. But aside from all of their fire packs that they make, they make a ton of other load-bearing essentials, namely being the ski and hunting world. Oh, yeah. And a ton of other stuff, actually. But if you want to go uh, backcountry skiing and you need to, you know, stash all your uh, stuff, well, they got a solution for you. If you go need to, if you need to uh, pull a trophy elk off the side of a mountain, well, they got a solution for you. Hell, they even make briefcases, which are pretty badass. And then they make you just, uh, you know, everyday backpacks and uh, other load bearing essentials. It's pretty cool. But today we are actually going to be at Mystery Ranch and I'm going to sit down with Mr. Dana Gleason. Yeah, the legend himself. It's pretty cool. And uh, I definitely want to give a shout out to those guys for having me up there during this whole uh, mystery ranch series that we've been doing. And guess what? They're giving back to the community, which is pretty badass. They're uh, they're open now. They're uh, the Backbone Series and the 1039 Scholarship Program, the Backbone Scholarship Program. Uh, they are live. So if you guys uh, want to go back to school and get a little bit of education under your belt, well, it's easy. All I got to go do is visit www.mysteryranch.com and check out the Backbone series. And if you are selected as a contributor to this whole thing, well, chances are you're going to get one of these awesome $1,000 scholarships. So with that being said, go over to www.mysteryranch.com and check it out. Banker Point Podcast is also going to be brought to you by our premier coffee sponsor. Who is that? Well, it is none other than Hotshot Brewery. Oh yeah, it's kick-ass coffee for a kick-ass cause, where a portion of the proceeds will always go back to the Wildland Firefighter Foundation, which is an awesome organization in and of itself. Yeah, so, and what else do they make? Well, they make a ton of other stuff. I'm pretty sure you guys are well aware of the full line of Wildland Firefighting-themed apparel and all the tools of the trade to get your morning started off right. So, go over there to www.hotshotbrewing.com and check it out. Oh yeah. And while you're at it, they support the Anchor Point Podcast by slinging our merch. Oh, yeah. So if you're looking for one of those Anchor Point Podcast tees or stickers, well, you know where to find it. www.hotshotbrewing.com. Go check them out. The Anchor Point Podcast is also going to be brought to you by our latest and greatest sponsor. Who is that? Well, it is none other than Manscaped. Oh, yeah. Your balls will thank you. They're pretty cool, actually. Um, I've had one of their lawnmower 2.0s for quite some time. Then I just recently upgraded to the lawnmower 3.0, which has that skin-safe technology to help guard the boys against unruly nicks and cuts, which, uh, yeah, that's uh, nobody wants that. But I'm just going to save you guys the uh, whole diatribe about 2020 being an absolute dumpster fire about stuff that's under our, out of our control. And I'm going to just cut straight to the chase. These things make awesome gifts. So if you're looking for a gift for your loved one, maybe a significant other, or if you just want to get your friends a very functional gag gift, well, now's your time. So if you go over to www.manscape.com and check out with the code AnchorPoint, all one word, you get 20% off plus free shipping site-wide. So once again, go over to www.manscape.com and use the code AnchorPoint for 20% off plus free shipping. I'm telling you guys, awesome gifts. And it's a lot of laughs involved in that. Anyways, go check them out. 
Dinger Point Podcast would like to give a quick little shout out to our buddy Booze over at the Ass Movement. And if you guys don't know what the Ass Movement is, well, it is the anti-surface shitting movement. I don't know if you guys have noticed this or not, but there's definitely a serious problem with our public lands and the influx of people defecating on them and not bearing it. It's disgusting. In fact, I, uh, I often go fly fishing and every time it's like clockwork, I find a human turd gift wrapped in toilet paper, just not even not even an effort to bury it. It's disgusting and that shit needs to stop. But good for you is you can help spread the poo burying propaganda worldwide if you want to. Go over to www.thefirewild and check out the ass movement and help spread that propaganda with some buttons, stickers, posters. Hell, they even have a turd trowel that you could probably gift to your problem pooper on your crew or one of those problem poopers that you may know. And check this out. Listeners of this podcast can actually get 10% off their entire order by using the code AnchorPointAss10 at checkout. Oh, yeah. So it's a good cause and it's propaganda that needs to be spread. So once again, go over to www.thefirewild and check out the ass movement and use that discount code to get all of your ass movements needs met. And last but not least, the Anchor Point Podcast is going to be brought to you by the Smoky Generation, also known as the American Wildfire Experience. And if you guys and girls don't know what that is yet, well, I highly recommend going over there and checking it out. Go over to www.wildfireexperience.org and check out the collection of over 100 stories about wildland firefighting dating all the way back to the 1940s. It is pretty damn cool. Bethany has a kick-ass organization over there and she's giving back to the community. How you might ask? Well, I'm sure you guys and girls out there in the field are well aware of the Smoky Generation grants. And if uh, you haven't found out about these yet, well, you're probably living under a rock. But if you happen to be a writer, a photographer, a blogger, a cinematographer, anybody who's telling the story of wildland fire worldwide now, oh yeah, this is a, a, a global affair, if you will. Well, 2021 opportunities are right around the corner. So if you guys are interested in that, well, go over to www.com wildfireexperience.org and be on the lookout for that next round of grants. Go check them out. The views and opinions of this podcast do not reflect the views and opinions of the United States government, the Department of the Interior, the Department of Defense, the Department of Agriculture, the United States Forest Service, the Bureau of Land Management, National Park Service, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, or any private, municipal, county, or state firefighting organization, any law enforcement agency, any medical provider, or any contractor employed by any federal agency. What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome back. Welcome back to another episode of the Anchor Point Podcast. Hope everybody is doing well, and I hope that everybody enjoyed their Thanksgiving. Hope everybody was able to, you know, kind of tune out and enjoy their time with family and friends. And I hope you guys listened to me on the uh, last little episode that we did, but I hope you guys got the opportunity to call or text or hang out with some of your fire family as well. But with that being said, 
Today on the show, we're going to talk about Mystery Ranch. We've been doing a uh, little series on those guys and all the stuff that they do, a little behind-the-scenes action about what goes on over there at the ranch. And this is going to be our uh, last episode of that series. So we're going to talk about how Mystery Ranch came about. We're going to talk about the whole design process and the reasoning behind it, which is pretty cool. Uh, there's some laughs, there's some tears, there's some joy, and it's pretty cool, man. And uh, I, I'm very thankful to have this opportunity to sit down with the man, the myth, the legend, El Jefe, El Presidente himself of Mystery Ranch, Mr. Dana Gleason. It's been a wild ride, and uh, I'd had no idea about all the behind-the-scenes action, but you know what? It's pretty cool, and uh, yeah, I figured I'd pass that information on to all of you guys as well. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, I would like to introduce my good friend, Mr. Dana Gleason. Welcome to the Anchor Point. All right. Cool. Well, let's yeah, let's roll with it. I'm excited. It's gonna be fun. Fun or die. Hey, yeah, that's a that's that's good stuff to live by. Have yeah. fun, or like, what's the point, right? True. Yeah. Well, I became unemployable at age 27. Why? Because you're spoiled. Uh, no, because I got tired of doing stupid things for stupid people that weren't going to work anyway. Huh. So you decided to work for yourself. Um, well, yeah, actually. And, uh, that then came around to fairly soon after that, realizing that if I, well, if I made people do stupid things and was stupid, I'd just create more unemployable people and they'd be in competition with me. And (laughs) that kind of ruled how we started doing things, uh, back, uh, uh, at the end of the first company I put together called Clutterworks. Yeah. And, uh, what can I say? Uh, you know, it, uh, was still, uh, impressed upon me that, uh, how to phrase this, uh, this is hard work and, uh, there was no need to make people, uh, you know, go through unpleasant things to do it. And uh, that's sort of kept on working over the years as uh, a way of uh, having a sustainable uh, yet anarchistic, uh, you know, uh, attitude towards the business. Yeah. And uh, it kept things pleasant. I could still ski with people as opposed to always oh, an asshole. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and, lessons uh, learned. You know, it ultimately worked out. But uh, I had been working in the outdoor industry for a few years, and uh, I had gone from uh, working in shops mainly to get the employee discount because I couldn't afford this stuff at retail. Yeah, no shit, right? Uh, oh man. Um, and then from there, ended up managing a shop for a while and acquired a sewing machine because uh, the modifications I was trying to do to my existing gear just overpowered the home sewing machine I had. Yeah, your little singer, like home sewing machine is just not going to cut through it. No, yeah, it doesn't. Gonna, and, you know, break. after a while, you know, I was living in a second story apartment 
And uh, it had a nice little courtyard backyard. And one fine day, I ended up hurling the sewing machine out through the door <laughs> into the snow of Chicago in February. Most pleasant place imaginable. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. It's, it sounds cold. Definitely. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, compared to Montana, by far the coldest and most miserable winter I ever spent. Even even worse than here. I can imagine it gets- nice dry cold there. You know, it might only be, you know, 28 or 32 degrees, but it's slush and it's awful and the wind's blowing off of Lake Michigan Ugh. and uh, it's just not a pleasant place to be. No, it doesn't, doesn't sound as nice as Montana, as Bozeman, especially. Yeah. This is a nice place. Uh, it absolutely is. Yeah. And, you know, I discovered it almost by accident. When I became a uh, sales rep uh, for some outdoor companies that were just starting out mm -hmm. and uh, I, I ended up uh, working several different territories, uh, you know, opening it up, uh, showing people, hey, look at this new stuff. And yeah, we're building it. Uh, we're building it in China. You'll love it. Um, this was actually uh, a company called Snow Lion that uh, they got the bright idea of let's try and build good gear, but let's build it someplace less expensive. Yeah. And uh, that idea worked for a while. And I ended up uh, at a certain point given a proposition that uh, was made by people I thought was smart, but it was to do something stupid that wasn't going to work. And, uh, and I attained unemployability. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> and then it was on to bigger and brighter things then. Well, I was already had moved to Bozeman. I had learned about it. Um, I had opened up the Northeast, the upper Midwest, uh, done work uh, for them uh, up in uh, Minnesota and Wisconsin. But, you know, I, I got wind of, hey, there's this place called Bozeman. And... It's really cheap to live there. And well, not anymore. The terrain, and, yeah, <laughs> this was 45 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> you got in one of the getting was good. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, I've been looking at stuff uh, like that the local uh, outdoor magazine's been putting out. They've been here since 2000 and they're talking about all the big changes. Well, in 2000, I was already looking on, oh, this has changed so much. Yeah. Um, but we had Bridger Bowl, the ski area. Uh -huh. Big Sky had been founded. Wasn't um, really up and running yet, though, right? It was running, but up until they uh, put in the gondola that goes up Lone Peak, mm -hmm. it was basically a huge intermediate area. So it was just like a, a not necessarily a bunny hill, a little bit bigger than a, a little bunny bigger hill. than yeah. a bunny hill, but still, it was big and blue. It was not big and black. Uh, in terms of the signs and uh, everybody who's hardcore was skiing at Bridger Bowl. Yeah. And people like Doug Coombs and a lot of other folk came out of Bridger Bowl. Some salty legends in the ski community. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's also where modern American avalanche control was pioneered. No shit. Oh, yeah. Really? <laughs> yeah. Um, when I got here in 1975... 
they already had avalanche beepers. Uh, the first of which was something called the hot dog Skaty. Skaty was the company name, a Swedish god of snow. Mm-hmm. And hot dog was because this thing was basically the shape of a squared off rounded corners uh, hot dog. And it was put together with just a printed circuit board and some loose wire inside. And the thing with uh, modern avalanche control was that uh, they had decided that, uh, you know, someone had to mechanically stabilize the snow up above the actual uh, ski area, which was lower than the ridge of the mountain. So like fencing kind of like, what do they call those things? I forget what they call them, but they're like basically slats in the ground that basically Uh, shelf it up. There was a little of that, but what they really meant by mechanical compaction was you're going to get some morons to walk up to the top (laughs) of the mountain and then ski it. And uh, basically, you may end up triggering some slides. Uh, And they certainly also, uh, you know, developed and learned, uh, you know, doing explosive control and uh, things like, uh, you know, just using shovels and going out each morning to chop down the cornices. But what is considered normal for backcountry skiing now with beepers Really, that was the first place that that was used in a big way. No, it's here in Montana. Yeah. 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 And uh, that fired up uh, in the uh, very late 60s, early 70s. And what you had to do was acquire a beeper, ski with a shovel. Mm -hmm. Um, You had to pass a test for locating a buried beacon. So like triangulating your, your beacons. Well, you're actually skiing a pattern that uh, you can hear the signal get uh, stronger or weaker through a tiny little uh, earpiece that kind of like uh, an earbud. Yeah. Kind of like an earbud, but it was the sort of thing that was used for the new pioneering rah-rah Japanese transistor radio. Uh, <laughs> is the latest and greatest. Oh, yeah, test. this yeah. was long before Walkman and such. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah. And you, you could actually, if you'd practice to know what you're doing, um, have a half a chance of locating someone buried. Yeah, which increases survivability. Oh, yeah. yeah. Now, avalanche training was a little different back then. Because you got trained in the whole panoply of what people had. So there was also this part of the early training courses in the mid to late 70s where they gave you a funny little soft, clear plastic tube and some fertilizer and some diesel. <laughs> oh, yeah. A, oh, yeah. You're making your own explosives. You made your own explosives. You cap it and <laughs> throw it and... It was a wonderful time, I've got to say. <laughs> <laughs> Shit has definitely changed since then, oh, that's for sure. it certainly has. Oh, wow. Um, so, when I got to Bozeman, I was just on cross-country skis. Uh-huh. I was not on downhill skis. And uh, it was interesting ending up at Bridger Bowl. And, yeah, doing some cross-country skiing, but in 75 millimeter wide, wood skis with low cut boots and rat trap bindings 
starting to learn how you do this on a hill. Yeah. And this was so long ago. It was before Telemark had been rediscovered. And you know, Telemark came along around 78, 79 as things we'd heard whispered about uh, from it's kind of some a- folk in the Northeast, uh, like up at Mad River Glen. And, uh, you know, we went through a number of different phases. Uh, for myself, skiing is why I was here. Yeah. And so that went from working on touring stuff and, you know, finding a breakthrough with a Fisher ski called the Europa 77, which had aluminum edges. Ooh, fancy. Oh, yeah. Edges. Whoa. <laughs> up to that point, the wood skis we had didn't have old style downhill screw in edges. They had a compressed wood called Lignostone. Uh, that edges. sounds very Nordic. Very Nordic. <laughs> And, uh, you know, in those days, uh, if we were skiing downhill, I mean, if you slipped or you fell, if you rolled over and came right back up on your skis, that was style points. That wasn't a fall. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he recovered 10. Give him a 10. Oh, yeah. And we were then cutting the cuffs off of uh, downhill boots and adapting them, sort of wrapping them and riveting them to the uh, bodies of Nordic boots and uh, basically trying stuff until it worked. And then when real Telemark gear came in, we were using that. And then in the uh, mid 80s came across uh, the first uh, Dinafit bindings, mm-hmm. same bindings that are out there now as tech bindings. Huh. And, uh, you know, I was doing some downhill as well, but I discovered that the uh, Randonnée boots were so much more comfortable than downhill boots that I stayed in those forever after, including in the 90s when I got my first uh, snowboard off of Jake Burton Carpenter. Oh, the legend himself. The legend himself. So did you did you know him personally? He came out uh, two or three years running. Uh-huh. And they shot catalogs here uh, at uh, uh, you know, up on the Bridger Mountains. So I met him a few times and he gave me a early prototype Burton Air, mm-hmm. which I'm a big guy. And it was like a 156 centimeter board. Little little short for so, you. Yeah. How to phrase this. I'm sorry, Jake. I've got to say it. It sucked. It sucked so bad. I were like three years that I would get out and, uh, you know, try and use this thing the second or, you know, last run of every day. And but you never call the last time. run, though. Hmm? You never call the last run, though. That's like bad luck in my book. Nah, whatever. If you thrashed yourself for the day. Yeah, you knew. Yeah. And then I, uh, you know, early 90s uh, ended up getting a uh, 172 centimeter avalanche. And I got on that the very first time. And, oh, my God, I can do this now. Yeah. You're not constantly oh, yeah. spend, you're not and, spending more time on your ass. You're spending oh, yeah. more time on, well, on the Well, it led to a decade of, I mean, until I touch skis again. So you've and, done it both. Oh, hell yes. Yeah. I've done it all. Well, that's mountain culture, man. You got like some of the best skiing and snowboarding in the United States. Oh, absolutely. Right here in your backyard. And this was, I mean, for the longest time, 
And we do a version of this now. If we had eight inches of fresh snow. That's considered a pow day in my book. Oh, yeah. What it came down to is, you know, I tell my people, don't lie to me. Just (laughs) make up the hours later. Just get the hell out and go do it. (laughs) This is back in the... Kletler works. Did I say that right? Kletler works Kletler was works. 75 to 78. Gotcha. And uh, in late 77, I had still from that 75 to that time been also being a sales rep because Kletter works was, we, we had no idea of how to be in business. Uh-huh. We were simply building some pretty cool, very base, basic packs and moving from my garage into an eight by 40 foot forest service surplus trailer into a storefront in downtown Bozeman. There we go. Oh, yeah. Huh. And uh, through those periods, I was still, you know, we weren't trying to wholesale to shops, particularly because yeah, it was hard to get these things built. Yeah. And well, it's all hand built. It's not like the, I mean, when I took a, took a tour through your shop today mm-hmm. here at Mystery Ranch, yeah, there's like a lot of high tech shit in there. There's like laser cutters. There's We're like good at sorts, it. Sorts I crap. wasn't particularly good at it. We just had stumbled into, I did some very pretty good basic designs. Mm-hmm. Um, they weren't basic then they are now. And, uh, had done some repairs and didn't want to make stuff that would not hold together. So, I mean, we didn't know anything. So I made stuff up like, all right, let's hot cut this material so it can't fray and come apart. Yeah. Which we did for about another six or seven years before we got onto a different way of uh, making the packs so that uh, they would last. So, uh, yeah, I'm kind of proud of, uh, you know, how I attained unemployability. I was, you know, we came out, I'd ended up making the deal that my territory going from when there were no reps and I was running all around the country to, okay, I'm going to own a territory. Yeah. And it was Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming. Way cool. That sounds like a, a pretty bitching territory it's to a me. bitching territory, except for one thing. What's that? There aren't enough people there to support uh, <laughs> this kind of a thing. Yeah, I can imagine that, especially back then, you know? Yeah. So uh, basically, uh, the guy who was the sales manager for Snow Lion and Wilderness Experience and a couple of other things, or at least knew who was and I operated through, um, who was, in fact, my sensei. He was like for your- a lot of the business stuff, but... Uh, yeah, he came up with something that caused us to have a minor disruption for a few years, which was I needed to be able to tap more people. Mm-hmm. I mean, we had by far the highest per capita sales in the country. It still just was there aren't enough people in Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming. Yeah. Now, if I was able to work in Utah, that would have done a lot because, well, geez, I'd be able to ski pow on the front range. Oh, I love the front. That's some of my favorite skiing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, excuse me, the Wasatch front range rivers, Colorado, different thing. Yeah. So uh, the Wasatch is, yeah. yeah. Like Snowbird. Oh man. That's like one of my oh, yeah. favorite well, resorts. Alta was the place for me. 
Ah, see, they didn't allow snowboarding until just recently, I want to say. Yeah. And, and you know what? I was cool with that because it was still just, you know, an awesome meld of backcountry and ski area. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have to have everything open to me. There's plenty to ride. Um, it was a little awkward for a few years in the 90s, but uh, that was fine. I don't begrudge it. Anyway, uh, my friend, the sales manager, uh, he had the f- guy who was uh, doing New Mexico and Arizona and Utah end up resigning. Okay. And it seemed kind of a natural that I could take over Utah. Well, as it turns out, the guy who was running uh, and repping in California wanted some more territory. So he took it. uh, My friend Marty came up with uh, something he thought would make everybody happy. Here, you can rep Utah, except for the strip from Provo to Logan. So that whole Wasatch range, basically. Where the people are. Yeah. 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 I could go to like Price where they have coal mines. I could drive the whole distance uh, down to St. George. St. George is an awesome town. Yeah. St. George is an awesome town, but it was about 3,000 people then. And would be 400 miles to get to. (laughs) So I thought about this uh, two or three moments and went, Marty, I have another proposition for you. You find a moron to rep Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming because I quit. <laughs> that was how I became unemployable. It was Again. wonderful. No, the first <laughs> no, the first time. Gotcha. Oh, yeah. And I went on to uh, keep on uh, building the Clutterworks. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, we were making a living off it. And uh, then I had some interesting adventures with the poor choice of business partners. And... Uh, Ended up, uh, ended up getting six thousand dollars in a sewing machine Ooh. to get out of it. So that's how you left. That's how I left. Okay. Now the actual thing that went on because I also signed a non compete to not build packs for five years. Oh in yeah, the outdoor market. Woohoo! Five years. That's nothing. Uh, I've, I've sat out five years a few times now. The thing is, we had just started also on my own interest building camera bags. And uh, my uh, partner and the folks I was working with, no, we're a climbing line. We don't, we aren't interested. We're outdoors only. Yeah. Yeah. So went and started working in the house that I still live in now. And well, you, you've, you've owned the same home since then. I bought it in 1978. Yeah. No shit. Oh, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, $29,000. You know what? I envy that number because I just recently purchased a house. My wife and I just recently purchased a I'm house. I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh, my God. And it's oh, yeah. not a lot of house. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a very, oh, yeah. very high price tag. Yeah. The house, the house next door just sold for 650 Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. And I don't regard that as a good thing to tell you the truth. But yeah. So... That's yeah. It's like, it's kind of crazy how, uh, well, when you bought that thing back in the day in 1978 mm-hmm. for, you said 29,000. Yep. 
And now it's worth if the house next oh, door yeah, but sold it's to been you. rebuilt like four times yeah. and it was the worst house on the block and it would have fallen in on itself within 10 years if some moron hadn't bought it. Oh, that's me. <laughs> Wait a second. <laughs> that's the funny thing, though. It's like, um, yeah, I mean, I know a lot of places, especially up here in the Intermountain West. Mm -hmm. A lot of people are moving out of other states and moving up here because they want their little slice of the pie. Yep. Yeah. So housing market has gone insanely high. It's it went gone. insanely high as far as I was concerned in the late 80s, early 90s, and it's multiplied since then. Yeah. And long about 2000, I was in my, it's just not the same anymore mode. Uh -huh. And as it turns out, as things have gone crazier, A, we have some great restaurants. Yeah. B, yeah, I don't know everybody in town anymore. But C, our kids that we have raised can now make a living here. That's and good. And you know That's what? Important. That doesn't suck. Yeah. Um, and met a lot of interesting people. And yeah, some things have changed. And yeah, I'll probably end up with a place in a little bitty Montana town, not to be disclosed, <laughs> that uh, I can be a grumpy old man at when I feel like it, because otherwise living in Bozeman is still awesome. The mountains are still there. The rivers are still there. Huh. See, I would have figured, uh, I would have, I would have guessed that you had been a, you know, there's two teams with people moving to like your small mountain town, right? Mm -hmm. There's either team like, yeah, come here. It's awesome. Or team. No, it's horrible. It sucks. It's terrible because oh, they don't want people bagging for years, many, many years. <laughs> they don't want people yeah. moving here. You yeah. know, it's like, this is like a, a little slice of heaven right here. It's cool. Um, you know, it's changed. Yeah. And that's All things not change, necessarily though. a horrible thing. Mm -hmm. And, um, it, it's on its own terms. It's still an awesome place to live. And we talk about little mountain towns. Yeah. When I moved here, yeah, it was, you know, about 25, 30,000 people and there was nobody in the valley. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, had a university that's pretty darn good technical school, uh, Montana state. Yeah. Had an opera. Ooh, fancy. Oh, we had some culture. <laughs> I almost just spit my beer out. <laughs> it was more than just a cow town. Yeah. Even then. Uh, and that made it a much more interesting place to be. Mm -hmm. um, and these days, there's uh, it's a tech center for... Uh, laser and fiber optics and software. No shit. Oh yeah. No, it's, it's a monster for that kind of thing. Well, I've seen it expand. You know, I, I drove through here on my way to the Custer battlefield. Like, I don't know, was that six years ago or something? Shit like mm -hmm. that. Five, six years ago. And uh, yeah, it was even from just passing through it and then coming back here, yep. you know, later, it's definitely changed. Oh, and the early part of this, it was already in process when you drove through. In the early part of the 20th century, there were two different outfits that started doing different kinds of software, but doing it very successfully. Mm -hmm. Software that uh, services some big money industries. Both of them ended up selling for 
a little more than a billion each. Holy shit. And in both cases, about a hundred million stuck to the employees. Guess what those guys did? Buy they, houses. They, well, they bought houses, <laughs> but they also started up more tech companies. Yeah, they used their expertise to create something of their own. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that was a good time and a good place for it. Still is a good place for it. Hmm. And uh, lots of other people from the outside realized, hmm, this doesn't suck. Yeah. Although I, mean, I do shit. have to say, anytime we get a cold, cold winter, we do get a lot of Californians moving out the next fall. But <laughs> like, it's too cold for me. It's just part of natural selection. <laughs> it takes a hearty bunch. Yeah. That's no, it's good. Uh, yeah. Bozeman's a, a wonderful place. And I didn't know, I, I didn't have the knowledge that you've been here since 1975. <laughs> since 75. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's cool. I mean, by 78, uh, late in 78, I was on to my uh, second business and the first one that ended up grossing a million dollars a year. Really? Uh, As in, oh, this is getting pretty real. And this is Data Designer? No, this was called Mojo Systems. Mojo Systems. All right. Divulge. Uh, That was, you know, I was uh, contractually precluded from doing, you know, outdoor and mountaineering packs. Yeah. But uh, I had uh, fallen into, hey, let's do modular camera bags that you can hang on your body, you can put onto a belt, you can stick in a backpack. Uh, For at the time, the only real serious cameras that existed were single lens reflex cameras Mm -hmm. where you'd have modular lenses, a motor winder. Uh, different kinds of flash systems. And they were incredibly popular because the alternatives were Kodak Instamatics, which were plastic gobs of crap. (laughs) Just big old pile of shit. Yep. Or uh, pretty much that was it. I mean, you you got these highly technical cameras that were modular or you were in Instamatic land. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I came up with cool ways of packaging this stuff in the field. Uh, My main competitor, which was uh, called Lowepro, which actually had its founding and then split off from another pack company called Low. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Low's pretty, it's still around too. Sort of uh, a few owners later. Okay. Um, I could have sworn I've seen their logo. Oh, you've seen their logo. They were huge. In the 20th century. <laughs> <laughs> and that's L-O-W-E. L-O-W-E. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Just- and, and great people. I mean, hugely authentic when it started out. They were the first uh, pack with uh, compression straps. Mm-hmm. I had a few other firsts, but they turned out the first identifiable modern internal frame. And cool on them. Yeah. <coughs> And Mojo and Low Pro for the first few years were at about the same size. And uh, you know, we ended up being very successful on the camera bag front. Um, but then a funny thing happened. Let me guess that expiry. Hmm? Was it the expiry of the non-compete? That, that happened a little later. But what started happening was... The Japanese 
companies like Fuji or Olympus, et cetera, mm-hmm. that were doing very good, you know, single lens reflex cameras. They also came up with the first real rangefinder cameras with automatic rangefinding. Uh, Leica and, you know, European cameras, uh, there were a lot of them that were not single lens reflex. They were built like little gems. They were wonderful, but you'd have to guess how far away your uh, the subject of your picture was. And you would have to focus and you couldn't look through it to see the focus. Mm-hmm. But they were much smaller than SLRs. You could do good photography, but you needed to be much more skilled. There was the a Japanese, true art. Yeah. It, it was a true art. The Japanese came up with uh, mostly uh, uh, ultrasonic range-finding systems that allowed that much smaller camera to then automatically focus in on the uh, on the wearer or on the uh, person that you wanted to shoot. And the thing is, <coughs> while these SLRs were hugely, hugely popular, mm-hmm. And you had to have a bag to have all that stuff in all it, the which lenses was great and other for shit. me. Yeah, yeah. Um, basically, you know, people would be, "Oh, I'm going to go shoot, uh, go out and shoot some art. I'm going to shoot, uh, you know, a mud pattern in a stream as an abstract thing. Yeah, that kind of stuff." And they weren't taking pictures of Johnny and Susie because it was too much trouble to set up to just do that kind of stuff at home. Yeah. And when these new uh, uh, autofocus cameras, as they were called, started coming out, people would get one because they were much cheaper than the SLR system and they were much better than the Kodak Instamatics. Mm-hmm. And they'd run a roll of film and it fit in their pocket and uh, basically became much simpler to get great pictures of Johnny and Susie and uh, Wolf the dog. <laughs> and suddenly the SLR system was gathering dust in the corner. Yeah, because everybody wanted the oh, yeah. ease of use. Yeah. And, yeah. and the SLR systems exist today in a digital version. They're yeah. still Shit, I got one right here. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But that's a different thing yeah. than what you would use day to day on the family. Well, those SLRs back in the day, that's like the kind of cameras that, you know, Ansel Adams was taking. Uh, He was using view cameras. That's a sort of a different thing. Gotcha. But it was what a lot of great photography was done with back when you could make a living as a photographer. Back when you could. That's a different thing. It's Yeah, it's a hard thing today. That's for damn sure. Oh, it absolutely is. And I've got some great friends who have and are still trying to reinvent themselves and what they are producing so that they can be true to their art. But the business has changed entirely like three times over. Well, that's the thing, man, is everybody has a pretty much a professional grade camera. Oh yeah. I'm using air quotes here, of course, but in their, in their pocket, iPhone. That's, that's a great camera. Well, and that's the thing. This is what, you know, they, maybe people should have seen that coming, but who would have thought that a phone would replace this stuff? Exactly. And replace it extraordinarily well. Um, but in the meantime, 
Uh, as I was growing the camera bag company, I had uh, hooked up with a outfit that distributed photographic gear. Mm-hmm. It was a much better choice of business partners than what I had done with Clutterworks. Oh, yeah, Clutterworks. Uh, yeah, they went bankrupt twice in three and a half years after I left the company. Oh, not once, but twice. And uh, that's aggressive. Yeah. So I suddenly no longer had a non-compete to worry about. Well, if you're going to fuck up, you might as well fuck up hard. Do it twice. Uh, It was impressive. (laughs) It was truly and deeply impressive. And, uh, yeah, I had good instincts on leaving the company. That's good. But, uh. The uh, point and shoots came out, the autofocus cameras. Um, The edge was gone off of SLRs as this leading, going to grow forever big thing. Um, The Apple IIe came out (laughs) and we started building bags for hauling around the original apples. Yeah. And which is not a small object. Not, it wasn't huge. It was still. Better than what they called luggables that had the screen built in. Oh, the they have like actual carry handles on top yes, of them. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, I remember playing Oregon Trail oh, yeah. on those things. Well, and we were doing <laughs> other things. Like there was no portable sound systems in the late 70s. Yeah. So we were working with people that took auto tape decks. The first one was an eight track. <laughs> And it was an auto tape deck. <laughs> and instead of putting it in the car, they slapped a NICAD battery pack uh-huh. on the bottom. And they were using, if you flew back in the 80s and 90s, you would be given a headset that wasn't with wires. It was with hollow plastic tubes. No shit. No shit. It had a transducer in the arm of the seat. And, and you plug a plastic tube in there. And the- well, it was two plastic tubes and it came up and it turned into, you know, little ear things that would go in that hurt. <laughs> and that's how you got your sound system on airplanes before they started using wires and earbuds. Gotcha. And so this thing had the plastic tubes, which got kind of rigid in the cold. And it was a car freaking tape deck you wore on your chest. Yeah, an 8-track, too. It's not a small object, either. No, we went to cassettes pretty quickly. The first one was (laughs) 8-tracks. And, man, they were nice because you didn't have to flip the tape. or Do the A-side, B-side thing? No, no, no. They they just sort of kept on going forever. Um, But, yeah, they were funky and weird. Uh, I like funky. I like weird. Yeah, well, (laughs) you would still jump on the cassette deck when it came out immediately. There was no... Walkman till like five years later. Yeah. And, you know, as obvious as a Walkman. And then if you breathe on the Walkman, it skips. Oh, (laughs) that depends. I mean, you know, they were a solution that wiped out this thing. This thing was only being used by bump skiers Mm -hmm. who wanted to establish a rhythm. And, you know, they were dressed in neon and had little bitty skis. And, oh, my God, it was so long ago. <laughs> <laughs> Just plug in the nature or yeah. so, to kiss of like Van Halen or something. 18 pounds of tape deck on your chest. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot. Oh, yeah. Well, we developed stuff for carrying that. So it wasn't quite as foul an experience. Uh, we started developing uh, the first computer cases. Um, VHS and beta came along, mm-hmm. giving us 
what was referred to as portable video. Air quotes here. Air quotes, man. It's like a 38 pound <laughs> recording deck and then a big ass camera. Mm-hmm. And we started creating stuff for that. Um, we did a certain amount of uh, work for some really odd military uh, uh, electronics packages. And then the the thing that we closed out with in 1985 was building what are called camera barneys. Which was that? It's a case that goes over a uh, news type video camera. Oh, okay. And building it with heating pads in it and building it so that uh, ABC was able to uh, live broadcast uh, the first videoed ascent of Everest. We had to heat these things so they would keep working and moving because, you know, they were. And this was uh, what's referred to as a U-Matic deck, which uh, was basically what broadcast used. It was many more tracks than you saw in beta or VHS, Mm -hmm. professional level gear. Um, Also ungodly heavy. (laughs) I could imagine. And uh, I mean, we started getting a taste for solving problems. But during that time, uh, the non-compete went away. And materials that I had found for building really cool camera bags, really protective Mm -hmm. of the actual uh, uh, gear, things like sheets of uh, high-density polyethylene plastic, uh, fiberglass uh, bars that were flexible and pretty lightweight, but not weak, which actually were built uh, originally to be battens for sails um, and a number of other things. Um, I was able to then apply them to backpacks and I wasn't selling packs at the time. I was just, you know, we were making the living doing camera bags. So I was able to develop some pretty unique new packs. And we use those materials to this day. Yeah. Um, To my knowledge, the first packs with a frame sheet with a plastic sheet across the back and a piece of aluminum in it, shaping it. And uh, a few other firsts, which when combined with 450 will get you a Starbucks. Uh, (laughs) And, uh, Ended up building a line of packs built in men's and women's sizes, day packs up through big packs. I showed them to my camera bag partners and they went, no, they didn't go, oh, that's cool. They went, oh, that's that's camping. That's dying. That's going to go away. Oh, Uh, surprise, surprise. By the way, these people's main business was darkroom chemicals. That's sketchy. Um, Well, it it was the only way to do things. Up through the 80s into the 90s, um, digital started getting an edge, but they thought they'd always have a market in newsrooms. But by about 1994, it was a buggy whip. (laughs) Um, We ended up coming to a parting of the ways. But before that happened, I honored their, uh, their wishes. We did not start selling backpacks as we know them in 1983. Mm -hmm. 
but I connected with some old friends of mine, which is a different long, boring story. The people at Marmot Mountain Works. Okay. They had sleeping bags. They had uh, Gore-Tex shells. They had down jackets. They had a tent they were awesomely proud of out of Gore-Tex. Yeah. They didn't have a pack. Nothing. Nope. So we ended up private labeling these packs through Marmot. They actually financed getting a patent on a number of the technologies. That's rare. It was rare. This also meant they owned it. Yeah, true. That's life. Yeah. And uh, we went to market with them uh, for two full years, the Marmot Mountain Works packs. Pretty unique, pretty cool. And then they were going, yeah, but we need someone cheaper to build it. And in the uh, spring of 85, we were in long discussions because, well, they actually had the property rights to it. You keep learning. What can I say? (laughs) But then a strange thing happened. In July of 85, I got a phone call from Eric Reynolds, who was... uh, CEO of Marmot. And he said, Dana, man, I'm sorry. We're going to have to drop the packs. Why were they dropping the packs? They, they had all the other shit to go along they with had it. All the other shit to go with it. And they had, I mentioned a tent called the Taku tent. It was a freaking awesome tent. Yeah. It was wonderful. And they were so proud of it. And then Eric said, you can have all the tech back and do what you want. We'll sign the patent to you. Wait, they gave you back your patent? Oh, they did. No shit. Oh, they did. That's incredibly well, rare. They were cool. I mean, they were throughout the entire 20th century a cool company. Yeah. And the other long, boring story comes from we first connected with them. Uh, we first connected with them in like 1977 and uh, they helped do some things that kept uh, Clutterworks operating mm-hmm. uh, while I was busy taking on a partner that was a disaster. Um, and we touched with them at different times every 10 years or so. So it's kind of like a back and forth relationship. Every Oh, yeah. yeah. yeah it absolutely was. I mean... I got my first uh, uh, my first Sensamia bud from those guys that one of their brothers <laughs> had uh, grown in Hawaii and uh, sent over to Grand Junction. I mean, it was a deep relationship. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. you That's mean awesome. How much? Well, yeah, but try it. Okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's classic. Oh, man, it was the 70s. Come on. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> Yeah, shit. Now it's like practically legal in pretty much almost every state in the West Coast. Yeah, yeah. whatever. Something goes out of it when it becomes legal. What can I say? I know there's always the allure. (laughs) And for you folks that are working for the government currently, play it cool. Play it cool. Yep. Don't make any mistakes. Oh, yeah. No, it's, uh, yeah. What's the term? What's the statute of limitations? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) This is way long century. (laughs) It's not a big deal. Oh, man. Oh, but uh, yeah, what turns out happened. And this was also when Marmot had gone through building their own building in Grand Junction Mm -hmm. on Marmot Way. Oh, look at that. Oh, yeah. They were very proud of it. (laughs) 
Unfortunately, uh, the outdoor business in the late 70s and early 80s wasn't really that profitable. And uh, there were a bunch of companies that were breaking even or kind of, you know, losing a little money, but getting along. Just getting by barely. Yeah. 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 And uh, but what started happening around 1980 is a bunch of these brands, their sales were declining slightly or, you know, they were flat, but they weren't really making much money. And their banks started calling their notes. Ooh. Now, my friend. Time to come home and pay. Yeah. yeah. And, or just, okay, we're going to you know sell you or shut you down. Yeah. Now, my friend in China was making huge money building stuff for him and still getting it to them much cheaper than they could do anywhere else. He started essentially buying their bad debt and owning all of those companies. Oh, shit. Oh, yeah. Most of the outdoor business was owned by one guy come the late 80s. No shit. No shit at all. Huh. And this is what had happened to Marmot. Now, this guy didn't make tents, and he didn't make packs, and he wasn't interested in that. So as Marmot was growing but ran into a cash flow crunch, they ended up being acquired. Um, They uh, had been producing everything themselves in Grand Junction. Those jobs went away. They kept one little fig leaf, which was... The bag, sleeping bag shells would be made in China, but they would then come to the U.S. and be filled to be blown. (coughs) But they dropped the pack line Mm -hmm. and they dropped. And this is how I knew this was something extraordinary and weird. They dropped the tent line, which was something that That was was like their staple. Oh, it was uh, it was. Aside from Gore-Tex sleeping bags and jackets, it was a huge symbolic thing for them. So there I was, two years experience with a high-tech pack and the feedback. And the bloom was off the camera bag rose. And in 85, then we came around to, we're going into the backpack business. We ended up dissolving the business with the camera bag partners. They went on and started building camera bags in uh, Costa Rica and other places to build them cheap. Yeah. Because the other thing, remember the, uh, the uh, autofocus cameras, Mm -hmm. they needed a pot, basically a little tiny belt pocket that would cost about 10 bucks just to make Yeah. No, just to sell, just to sell. Oh, Oh, wow. Okay. You weren't doing that in the U.S. in Bozeman, Montana. Nope. So that went away, which was fine. Um, We kept the machinery. We did some work for them for about six months. And uh, we had a backpack company again. (laughs) Woohoo! There we go. We called it Dana Design. There's the birth of Dana Design. August of 85. Nice. Yeah. So I went down to our local backpacking shop, which is an awesome shop here in Bozeman. Uh And I showed them the stuff. And they said, it looks really good, Dana, but... You know, if it's if, if you're making it in town here, it can't be special. We're not going to stick our neck out on this. It's it's too weird. 
And then I went into two years of trying to figure out how to get it to the market that wasn't asking for it. Um, God, I hope you're going to cut a ton of this. <laughs> <laughs> We're rolling, man. It's all go through, man. It's yep. all going through. And that's when I discovered that you can have great stuff. And if people aren't interested in looking at it, it isn't going to matter a whit. True. Um, they did say, you know, hey, if you were selling this in California or something, we'd take a chance on it. You know, because, you know, but if it's made up here, then how special could it be? You, you know, we're hicks. <laughs> Seriously. That's what they said to you? Oh, absolutely. Huh. And so I then went down to California and I'd been a sales rep. Okay. And I'd been a dealer. Yeah. You've got experience. You know, doing I had this. experience. Yeah. And so I started trying to hire a sales rep in California and I approached two of the best and they went, huh? And then I started approaching everybody and they mostly went, huh? And then I got someone who was actually a rep in the tennis world. Tennis. Tennis. But, you know, hey, he'd show it and he did show it. And, you know, it'd be a rep goes into the shop and he does all his regular business. And then if uh, the dealer isn't fucking sick of him already, <laughs> he might pull your stuff out and show it. And zero sales. So after eight months, uh, because of the timing, that was two seasons. He, you know, fired me. Uh oh. Oh yeah. And then I got the next guy, who was worse. And then the third guy I got, almost two years into it, mm -hmm. just stole the samples and was never heard of again. He just ghosted. Oh yeah. Oh, what a douchebag. And. We were doing, you know, the kind of projects that I already talked about at the camera bag company. We were still, I mean, one of the things we were doing was uh, making bags that would hold big home video decks that were being rented at Piggly Wiggly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. So you'd rent like three videos in the video deck. And we were building the bags for that and, you know, kept us alive for a while. But the backpack thing, I mean, the packs were the packs were essentially 95 percent of what we had brought into uh, into being as Dana design. Mm -hmm. I mean, the terraplane was the terraplane. It was there. It did not have the molded belt yet, but everything else was there. They were awesome packs. So I went, well, all right, I'm going to go down to California. I'm going to travel down multiple times per season and see what I could do. And I traveled down there and I showed them to dealers and dealers pretty uniformly. Uh, the buying staff went, yeah, but we got this Gregory stuff started out and I got low and I got no need for a new line. And we got this and we got that and, you know, whatever. Yeah. Now, at the time, selling to people who worked at shops was something only a few companies did, selling them at a big discount. Like uh, given, uh, it was usually like what, wholesale and yeah. co like co or cost plus 10% or something yeah, like that. Wholesale yeah. usually. Yeah. 
but you, they only did it if you were a really good dealer. And I went, uh, I got it, you know. Yeah. So I started giving any employee of a shop 50% off. Yeah. And here, try them up. And that started working. And we sold a few packs, even though we were probably losing money on them. So it's like the original underground viral marketing. Strategy. I don't know if it was original, but it, it worked. There you go. That's all that matters, right? Uh, a whole lot of these shops ended up with more than half of the employees using Dana Design. But the <laughs> shop wasn't selling it. The following season, I got a number of shops to cave. As in, oh, all right, I shouldn't have let them. You know, I shouldn't have let you do this stuff with my employees, but they want to sell it. And when the packs came in, the employees were already, you know, this is the best. Yeah. And that's what they sold. And we became the best selling pack in each of those shops pretty much immediately. The second season I did it, we were getting into all the hardest core shops mm -hmm. and most of the shops and holy crap, it's working. And it's just snowball. That snowball, snowball. effect. Now, yeah. I could have taken that as a lesson that oh, I don't need sales reps. The thing is, I mean, I was going out and packing with these folk and surfing their couches and, you know, smoking <laughs> my weed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. Uh, <laughs> What did you say the statute of limitations? Oh, never mind. Uh, it's, it's too far in the past. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're good. We're good. <laughs> and at the end of the second year, I had one of the very best reps in the country. Thanks, Bill. Uh, <laughs> His shameless plug. Take, take on the uh, line. Yeah. And as I say, I could have gone, oh, we don't need reps or we can do this from in-house, but I was ready to start working the next territory doing the same deal. Mm -hmm. And I have to tell you, this is how I spent 88 through 90. And it was one of the privileges of my life to go in and pioneer in each part of the country. I would basically take on two, what would be regarded as two reps territories, travel there several times, plus Word was starting to get around that this was, he may be crazy, but the packs are really good. Yeah, these packs are the shit. Yep. Yeah. And uh, we ended up uh, basically moving across the country. The Southeast was the very last territory I started moving into. And I'm, I'm from Boston, okay? Mm -hmm. I've seen deliverance. <laughs> it was a little bit worrisome, but getting there was like falling through an open door. Some of the nicest people in the freaking world. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Is that Possibly the only other place I could live besides Montana. Montana's got it going on, though. That's the, oh, that's the sure damn does. sure. Yeah. 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 And I got to admit, I, I don't actually uh, appreciate the humidity down there. No, no, I don't think anybody does. But uh, it's like no one stops and says, you know what I really love about the South? The humidity. Yeah. That, no that, one said no one ever. feeling on the skin. Oh, yeah. God, it's terrible. But uh, I mean, it was just such an incredible ride mm -hmm. meeting people in each area. 
and, uh, you know, breaking bread with them again, surfing their couch, smoking their weed. (laughs) Well, maybe not down there. That turned Are you kidding? Are you kidding? (laughs) All right. Fair enough. Okay. Uh, (laughs) Regional differences, but everybody's proud of what they grow. Uh, (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, it was still the 20th century. Uh, (laughs) Statue of limitations, folks. Yep. And uh, we established the line. And it grew and grew and grew. Mm -hmm. And we worked with the dealers. I was able to hire pretty much the best reps in each territory going across the country. Yeah. Which also allowed us to tap some of the smartest people in each local area that meant that this wasn't a case of, oh, you know, I'm brilliant. I'm sales managing everything. No, I'm simply collaborating with people who are huge users and also hugely aware of what's going on on the ground. Yeah. And we got very damned good at it, which is how Dana Design became as big as Gregory. And basically throughout most of the 90s, if a shop didn't have Dana or Gregory, it didn't have squat. Yeah. They weren't worth a shit yeah. basically. Yeah. Okay. And that's when, and, and we had grown this, you know, I mentioned that I'd had a business that had done a million a year. Mm-hmm. This, we had grown out to about 7 million a year. Holy shit. And my business partner who is still my business partner now, Renee Sippel Baker. Uh, and I had, we had had to change how we ran the business in certain ways while still maintaining our commitment to the actual packs and the hardcore users. Yeah. And we were starting to feel like, you know, maybe we had, you know, run our course. You know, if, if we're going to get bigger still, we're going to have to get smarter and people don't get smarter. No, they don't. I mean, look at me. I'm, I'm just a dumb caveman. <laughs> look at me. <laughs> um, so when K2 came knocking, uh-huh. um, it was pretty interesting. Like uh, K2, the, the ski and snowboard. Uh, and the company outdoor. that owned K2 plus many other companies. Yeah. And that company at the time, it was actually called Anthony Industries. Mm-hmm. Um, the CEO of the company, who was in his 80s, had developed a very progressive corporate culture. You could tap people from the other companies involved. Mm -hmm. You could go there and observe. You could get them loaned to you for a month at a time. So if you like needed some help or something. It was a learning organization. That's rare to find. It is. It was really cool. We got seduced. We also got a few million. So you guys sold Dana Designs. We sold Dana Design, but we were there to keep running it. And, you know, we were making really good money. I mean, why would they change? Yeah. But the buck doesn't stop there because now. Well, the buck stopped with Dana, that gentleman. Yeah. Unfortunately, that gentleman ascended to become the chairman of the company. I mentioned he was in his 80s. Yeah. Six months in, he had a heart attack and kicked. Oh, that sucks. And the person who came out controlling the company, 
was the CFO. Mm -hmm. And the CFO had a different set of principles. He announced that the company's highest moral calling was to increase shareholder value. In other words, make the stock go up for the actual shareholders. Yeah. If you ever get into a position where someone says, hey, we're going to have to uh, increase shareholder value, you either shoot or you run. Okay. There's, <laughs> no, there's no two nothing in between. Yeah. Um, hard one uh, advice. We stayed. We ended up with uh, a person who worked at that company who had a lot of outdoor experience. Mm -hmm. He was uh, had worked actually in Hong Kong for that company I mentioned that ended up owning most of the outdoor industry. Yeah. <coughs> Funny story. That company went out of business. Really? And all of those companies, North Face, Marmot, Sierra Design, all those companies ended up in 1996 being sold in bankruptcy. So there was like the auction kind of deal. Uh, essentially, yeah. although several of them, including the Marmots um, and North Face, although that's, again, a longer Boring story. Uh, actually, not that boring. Uh, that has a screenplay in it. Uh, <laughs> uh, Watch out, Martin. A, a collection of the Marmot people raised enough money to buy it out of bankruptcy. Okay. And they then ran it for a few years. Till they sold it to K2. <laughs> <laughs> I love how all this shit's coming together. All, like, yeah. all this shit comes together and apart and together again. It's so weird. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now, K2. Uh, let's. A couple of things happened on the way. Two years into it, they made us shut down our own production in Montana. Three sewing plants, 280 people. Oh. I. I bet you're pissed. I was not just pissed. I was heartbroken because there were my people. Yeah. I closed those plants down. <sighs> yeah. There were some tears. That sucks. And then, oh, no, 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 no. You're going to build it in Asia. These people are professionals. It'll probably be better than whatever you had. Da, 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 da. Mm -hmm. And for a year or two, it was because we had the supervisors that had been building the stuff in Montana. Unfortunately, you send them out to, oh, Ensenada, Mexico, or Colombo, Sri Lanka. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. You do that a few cycles, and they pretty much get sick of it and quit. Yeah, understandably so. And then we have no way to build more supervisors because we no longer have manufacturing. Yeah, you have no... And quality started yeah. to go downhill. My business partner left the year that happened. I left two years later. She was the smart one, as usual. <laughs> she saw the writing on the wall. Um, It just wasn't right. Huh. And so I retired at age 48 and at the end of 1998. Huh. So you're freshly retired. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sitting on a, you know, 
a few million. A little nest egg. Yeah. A little nest egg. Well, you earned every penny of it. So, I mean, you did that by hand. You went and couch surfed and smoked people's weed for, for this. So, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but a big part of it was we sold it because they would know how to behave and be in business and grow further. Yeah. And as it turns out, they weren't very damned good at it. In actual point of fact, many of the different companies that K2 bought in the 90s and the early aughts, they destroyed. They were famous for it. So is it like one of those uh, destructive acquisition kind of models? Well, I mean, it's not like they sold off the 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 assets in order to you know get all the money they were just not very good at it i mean they lost millions and millions inflicting this crap on small companies yeah well it sounds like they had way too many fingers and way too many kettles yeah something like that and fairly soon after i left um well in in, in the early aughts uh, K2 was bought by a different, actually smaller conglomerate called Jardin. Mm-hmm. And uh, at that time, they had also bought Marmot. Um, amusing note. In 2005, I got a phone call from a guy who had been a uh, Dana design rep up in the Northwest. Name of Alex. Uh-huh. And Alex is an awesome guy, but he called me up to tell me extremely sorrowfully that Dana, I'm so sorry, we're going to have to kill off the Dana design name. And he was a little surprised when my immediate response was, thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) You're just done with it, huh? Oh, so done. Yeah. I mean, I I resigned because uh, there I was pulling down six figures name on the company, mm-hmm. still titularly the president. And who would want to listen to someone with all that going for him, bitching about how bad it is? Yeah. I didn't want to listen to it. So I gave him the resignation letter with the stunningly original uh, salutation. Hey, and thanks for all the fish. <laughs> <laughs> I take it you're a Douglas fan for the um, line. Like it's that. just part of the cultural milieu. <laughs> gotcha. Oh, it's one of my favorite books. Yeah. Yeah. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Oh, that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Although I was feeling more like something out of Akira. (laughs) Jeez. Yeah. Um, So how did that form into the whole Mystery Ranch thing? Because now I was totally heart sick. Yeah. Okay. I I was didn't want to build packs anymore. Mm -hmm. And uh, I ended up skiing around the world for a season. That sounds super shitty. (laughs) To tell you the truth, (laughs) listen, I retired and I was no damn good at it. Mm -hmm. After a couple of months, it was sort of, oh, geez. You getting stir crazy. Do I have to go out again? (laughs) So bad. So freaking bad. And then, I I haven't mentioned my kids. I have four kids. Uh Uh-huh. And three of them are involved in the ranch here today and have been for many, many years. Um, But my uh, oldest, um, when she was 17 or 18, she was making life a living hell for herself and her parents. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, I, I, I can't say that I'm any angel in that matter too. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I was, I was a shithead, an utter shithead. And that's probably even an understatement at that age. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, uh, she was, let's just say that upon witnessing her late high school and early career, uh, none of my kids ever gave me a problem. It was sort of, no, we're not going to do that, dad. <laughs> But in Alice's case, I mean, I hadn't, she hadn't smiled at me in like two years Uh and we'd had some very negative adventures. And she said one fine day, I still had some sewing machines um, in March or so of uh, 99. Mm -hmm. She said, you know, dad, there's something that you haven't built that I would like to carry. And it was just a simple, simple hip sack, not something with a lot of straps and a separate belt and you had to pull it tight or operate it. Just yeah. some, but, but something that would carry a book or two. Yeah. And I thought about it and I said, well, okay, you know, well, let me give it a whirl. And I spent about a week and I was playing around with yeah, because I'd also been doing some, well, that's a different long, boring story. <coughs> Let's just say I realized we needed to build stuff that was easier to use than what we had at Dana and what everybody had. Yeah. And uh, I came up with a fairly basic notion that was a little more expensive and complex to actually build, but made the the waste portion of the pack wrap around you and stay your shape. Mm-hmm. Whereas something that has a belt that tensions down, when you fill the pack up really full, the whole pack gets round. Yeah. And the cut may look like it should wrap around you, but no, it's a freaking beach ball on your <laughs> butt. And I came up with, let's put in a little more framing that makes sure it wraps tightly around you. Yeah. Irrespective of what the load is. We call it lumbar wrap these days. But this hip sack had the very first example of it. And I gave it to her about a week later. And she put it on and pulled it tight, just one pull. And shook her butt a little and turned around and said, Thanks, Dad. That's just what I wanted. Huh. And... You ever hear the phrase, my heart broke? Yeah. I felt it. Oh. And we had been working on, oh, what we're going to do next. I mean, it was 1999. It was Internet 1.0. Okay, we'll start doing an app. We didn't call them apps then. But, you know, hey, we'll do a program that... It would do this or that, and then we'll build a company up and sell it and all that smart guy capitalist stuff. Uh-huh. When I felt my heart broke, break, I knew I was a one trick pony and I would build packs again. <laughs> that's awesome, though. That's that's inspiring, though. It's like your own daughter is like got you back into the pack game after years of you even retired from this game. Well, yeah, but, you know, I had a year or two of getting more and more pissed and then I had a ski season that I was not worthy of. (laughs) 
Well, no, that's that just. And then uh, this came to me. And remember, by that time, I'd been doing this stuff for 24 years. Yeah. And uh, so we started engineering some cool ideas. I started working on some business notions uh, involving a really good interface between pack and frame that would allow us to actually do the frame and the pack modular separately for various reasons. We came up with kind of scamming on a video game cartridge and hardware model. We licensed it to Kelty too, where they did their own version, but used the exact same mount between frame and bag. Mm -hmm. So people could buy the less expensive Kelty thing at any shop or get ours, which was, of course, better and was, in fact, better um, at a hardcore specialty shop. They could mix or match. I mean, sounds good, doesn't it? Yeah. 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 Over the next three years, we created a $3 million smoking hole in the ground. You know, that's attributed to, though, right? What? Your passion. Um, That's your passion, man. That's, that's, it's got to be. Passion is one word. Um, um, Delusion. Or stupidity <laughs> is another word. You I mean, didn't learn the first three it, it, times. <laughs> it, wrote, it wrote up great. And the first three times we had no money to start with. Yeah. If you are going to start a business, I highly recommend starting it with no money versus a ton of money. Kind of forces you to figure shit out. It does. And yeah. it forces you to have your head right down on the ground listening for vibrations. Yeah. And, uh, so we started this thing with money until we had no money. Woohoo! <laughs> and then ended up engaging, uh, you know, this is uh, probably not a popular phrase, but for the next three years after that first three years, uh, had to, uh, you know, we worked with the survival uh, response of a cockroach. <laughs> and we managed to keep the thing going. Just Part barely. of what we did to keep the thing going was fourth year in, we fired our entire dealer base and stopped selling in outdoor stores. No shit. No shit at all. So you're uh, direct to consumer. We that, went we direct, went direct to, to consumer, consumer, but we also found that some of the only people that needed the truly awesome framing system we this had. This truly hardcore shit that you guys yeah, developed. Yeah. yeah. As opposed to ultralight was coming on at the time. Yeah. Super popular. And everybody was getting into, no, no one will ever buy a pack for more than $250 again. And the Dana design packs, the best sellers were like four forty nine in the nineties. Holy shit! Oh yeah, it's like a thousand dollar pack these days. Well, well maybe no, not that it, much, it would but. be like a four hundred and forty nine dollar pack these days. Yeah. Still very expensive, super expensive. But that kind of thing had gone into eclipse for a number of years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> hey, we're about to come up on one of the questions you had prepared. Oh, oh gosh, is that the one that the, the Where'd you come up with the name? No, (laughs) not that one. Yeah, because I I thought you were going to tell me to fuck off on that one. (laughs) I just made it up. Okay, (laughs) turned out I made up a pretty good name, but then there's a story behind it. But it involves 1950s broadcast TV in Boston, (laughs) so it's more obscure than anything we've talked about yet. Let's forget it. There Uh, you go, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) That's how the naming of Mystery Ranch came about. 
Very obscure. Yeah. Let's let's just say Mystery Ranch describes what we are, not what we do. (laughs) It is kind of a mystery. Like walking through the shop, man, it's it's uh, it's it's interesting. The the ship you run here. Yeah. Like everybody's got a smile on their face. I, I haven't met someone who's like. Just, um, you know, we, yeah, we, not what pissed. we do is hard. Mm-hmm. It's hard work to do stuff at this level in a consistent manner. Mm-hmm. What that actually means is there's no real reason it has to suck too. Yeah. And these folk are very good at what they do. I've done it. I've got huge amounts of respect for the folk who are quite frankly, the base of the food chain building the actual gear. Yeah. And that matters a lot. And we've managed to create a company where that's where you start. And it's cool to keep doing it, but that's also where everybody else in the company ends up coming from and moving into as they gain experience. I gotcha. Well, it's cool though, because you see people walking around with smiles on their faces. You have a a refrigerator full of beer. <laughs> you got dogs and shit well, running around. We got dogs. Uh, the beer is, you know, okay. It's Friday. <laughs> um, you know what it amounts to is, you know, we're supposed to be talking about how there's always a search for excellence and this and that. Yeah, we just want to not suck. Okay, simple as that. And that's hard enough to do, but it's attainable. And there are so many things that happen in business where you end up making choices for very good business reasons to kind of suck. Yeah. We, you know, in the last few businesses, we came around to, let's not suck. (laughs) That's the answer. That's like the golden rule. Don't suck. But yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, essentially... We ended up with some connections in the military world from some things I had done years before at Dana Design. Yeah. Which was just adapting some of the stuff we were already building so that some military folk could get a color they needed, which, you know, wasn't much, but apparently a lot of outdoor companies uh, kind of caught on to that. Well, no, they kind of would decided that working with the military was you, know, you were dealing with baby killers, man. Why would you do that? Yeah. Kind of a we culture thing. was people who had some very uh, difficult problems to deal with. And, uh, you know, we were perfectly willing to work with them. Yeah. And the other thing is, is people in the special operations community, the best of them, and there's a whole lot of the best of them, reminded us a very great deal of working with some of the very best climbers and skiers in the world. This is that attitude thing, like that, that they're, focus, they're beyond that drive. ego. They just yeah. knew what they were doing was good. It wasn't a case of chest thumping or anything like that. Yeah. But we recognized a kinship. And uh, it... It worked out well. And uh, long about uh, 2000, uh, well, 2002, sometime after September 11, 2001, we started working with uh, elements of uh, the Navy SEALs and then some other military groups 
solving some interesting problems. That's a hell of a pedigree. And yes. did they, all right. So how did that work out? Did they contact you or? Oh yeah. 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 You, 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 we, we have reached out to other groups, but based on our reputation, working with a few other groups, this is an extremely personal mm-hmm. set of relationships and uh, trust is not easily established. And, uh, you know, especially mean, the trust it, thing, you know, it's, it's not a flag waving thing. It's, uh, you know, these guys, we, we can do some stuff for you. Yeah. Initially it was, and it was a thing in the military world for a while that, oh, our, our, our stuff sucks. Let's get that mountaineering yeah. stuff. Make it not suck. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like the Marine Corps ended up adopting a licensed version of the, uh, Arcteryx Bora 70. Mm-hmm. For several years, eh, three years, and they got a great pack. Yeah, unfortunately, it was a terrible pack for military use. It wasn't designed for that. It was an outdoor yeah. pack well, that was and, adapted. Well, and the right? other thing, yeah, it was tall. It was skinny. They Bump need something head. that's easy to get into. Mm-hmm. Short, fat, which is ugly, but functional. It were functional. It works well. Yeah, and you can't make it so that it's hard to adjust. And the Arcteryx pack, to adjust it, you had to take it apart, adjust it, put it on a person, see where it came out, readjust take it off, take it apart again. And I mean, they ended up with 180,000 packs and not 12 of them ended up getting adjusted properly. Oh, shit. And they turned out to be essentially the world's most expensive sea bag. Done good quality. It was this Bora 70, which is a good, good pack. Yeah. But it didn't meet their needs at all. Gotcha. And this happened to a lot of outdoor gear that was initially uh, brought in. In our case, that could have been me, but we were finding that while certain groups could use the outdoor gear very well in a mountain setting. Yeah. Well, you're in Afghanistan. It does. I mean, it's extremely mountainous. Well, it is extremely mountainous, but you're wearing it over body armor. Mm -hmm. So the fit is not the same. Yeah. Fit's still important. Comfort. You have to act. uh, We don't say comfort in the military (laughs) world. We say reduces injuries. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good way to put it. And frankly... That's what we do in the fire world as well. I'm about to say, yeah, it's about and the same thing for fire yeah. too. Same rules apply. Yeah. Yeah. And a key thing for us is not how good does it feel when you put the pack on at first. Our key uh, measurement is how do you feel at the end of a long fucked up day? Yeah. How does this pack not fuck you up any further than your job yeah. already does? Yeah. yeah. And if it doesn't, then you're going to notice an actual real difference. Um, and that's the basis that we have been adopted within the military and how we ended up infiltrating <laughs> the uh, wildland fire world. Yeah. Well, you guys have two separate missions here. You have, well, you got- we call both groups. They are the mission side of the business. Yeah. Yeah. Mountain and, end mission. Yeah. And these all play off of each other. There's a lot of things to be learned from different sects of that. Like, so you got like backpacking and mountaineering, Mm -hmm. obviously fire and military can learn a thing or two from that. Well, we started out with the backpacking, you know, and outdoor skills. Mm -hmm. 
and then did some stuff that let us transition into military and do some significantly good things. And then we started learning what they're actually doing and what they're doing it with and paying real attention to that. Because most outdoor companies that get a shot at dealing with the military are entirely focused on what we what what we can do to build you a better piece our way. When it's not the 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 principles. And it comes down to how can we do something that solves your problems and does it in a way where we're not telling you that everything you know is wrong and everything has to change. Well, it's kind of. Well, also outdoor gear. Yeah, you got to loosen up hip belts and then tighten them down and mess with stabilizers and constantly dicking uh, with it. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? A corporal will look at you as you try and tell them these things and they'll just go, it sucks. <laughs> they don't give any real they insight. They don't give yeah. a shit. Yeah. And that's fine. We had to build stuff that would work pretty damned well, used very badly or sized badly and something that would be like a freaking dream if used correct really well. Yeah. And really well has to be very, very easy to attain. But if you look at our adjustment system for the shoulder yoke that we call a Futura system, mm-hmm. it's very easy to do. And it's done right on your back and it gets done in 30 seconds. Yeah. You just yeah, sit still for that. Everything. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> also, real regular internal frames like the Bora 70, once you start trying to shove a 556 five, ammo can in or even worse 762 even worse a 50 you carry the something. batteries etc it does not maintain its shape yeah. at all it takes on the shape of the load which is why we build packs with what we call a mainframe where the bag is designed to be straight and all of the shaping happens between the pack bag and your back on the outside of the pack bag. Okay. And that makes a huge difference, something that's much more usable and deeply patented. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, does that same rule apply to your fire designs as well? Um, fire designs are a little different because they're much smaller. Yeah. But uh, there's serious amount of framing involved, much more than the uh, general run of, uh, you know, other fire packs have. Now, you can pull that out and let it be soft on your back if you're in a hell attack group, say, and you got to be able to shrink the size of the pack. Yeah, load it out for it flight configuration. Yeah. 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 Um, and, you know, for us. We were working our way through what military actually uses, what they want, combined with what we could do about what they actually need Mm -hmm. without offending people. Yeah. And it turns out we're pretty good at it. And And then you have to figure out how do you sell it to a military unit. Well, that's a hard part right there. That is... One of the things that went on in the first few years of Mystery Ranch is what I refer to as professional sociology. (laughs) You know, those professors at college, they're freaking amateurs, okay? (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, they may want to write a paper at some point or et cetera. What we did to figure out how to interface with the military community gotta speak the at language. several different levels, not just speak the language, but understand the power flows um, was seriously professional sociology. Yeah. And it is just as important as designing gear that people want. And uh, it was to a slightly lesser degree. How do we penetrate and do something that uh, firefighters would want? Same you've, concept. You, you've never seen a mystery ranch ad in the fire world. It's entirely no. word of mouth. Which is crazy to think of because you guys well, started. It's not your- crazy. I mean, you know, if, if, if a, a group, if a hotshot crew ends up getting the good packs, how many of them move on to a different group? In the next year. A lot of them, yeah. Yes, the infection spreads. Exactly. Because the stuff actually lets you feel better at the end of the day. Yeah, I mean, you're sitting there on on a fire day, you're pretty much embracing the suck all day long. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is not a pleasant experience, really. And nor is the military. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've never served or anything like that. In many cases, it's not. But if we can leave you feeling significantly better and less injured... Yeah. And maybe made it so it was easier to get what you needed when you needed it or to carry something awkward like, uh, say, a Carl Gustav or big ass recoilless rifle or something. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. And such fascinating problems. Yeah. And we spent a decade working the mission side. We ended up still selling direct um to the outdoor world with some stuff that was essentially technically worked over Dana design bags but with the current mystery ranch frames and you know what we sold you know a, a fair number yeah you know a few a couple of thousand a year um to uh, like Knowles and outward bound guides we had hunters starting to pick it up a little bit but that all amounted to, you know, a million dollars a year, which sounds like a lot. It's not truly enough to run a company on. True. <laughs> and what ended up happening with us is the military world started getting bigger. Um, kind of catching wind of your designs. Yeah. And then there was a competition for supplying several sizes of pack to Special Operations Command. And we won that technically. And part of why after we won it, we ended up developing one of the key technologies, which is something we call bolsters that lets the pack fit down very stably and comfortably, relatively speaking, over body. (laughs) Air quotes here. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that's uh, part of everything we do militarily now. Um, And... uh, I'll tell you, one fine day in uh, 2007, we were cranking along and actually it's more like 2006. And I had an interesting phone call with a uh, gentleman name of B. Ty mm-hmm. from Los Padres Hotshots at the time. And he wanted to know if we could do something about fire packs. And I went... What's a fire pack? And, <laughs> and the intrigue is, well, that's the thing. It's like, you seem to be a problem solver. That's like your, well, your thing. Yeah. 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 And 
you know, the, we talked a little bit and then he sent up a box and it was a big box. And when we opened it up, I had people running from the back of the shop we were in at the time going, where's the fire? Because it stunk of smoke. (laughs) And it had a half dozen different packs, including the famous blue thing that everybody loathes. Oh, man. The blue pack of death. Yeah. Oof. But also, you know, a few other packs from folk who were, you know, firefighters and trying to make things better mostly. Yeah. You know, line gear and a few other things. And uh, once we got past the stench. <laughs> um, Just had, nothing but ass, sweat, and smoke. survey tape all over it with notes written. That is like the quintessential firefighter shit right there. Is we take pink or orange flagging. Yep. Orange flagging. This was just, pink. Yeah, this is broken. Yeah. Okay, what's broken about it? Yeah. <laughs> we just know it's well, broken. Right on it with a Sharpie. Yeah. And he had really good, you know, hey, we hate this. We hate that. We need something that would do this. It was extremely informative. Yeah. And uh, we had another phone call and, okay, I'll take a hack at this. We'll send it to you. And, yeah, no charge. Just, you know, me. A little R&D and work. this used some tricks that we really liked in day packs. And, uh, you know, I was asking why, why is everything done low? It would carry it better up high, but, you know. We're bent over yeah, digging. When you're bent dirt. over digging and all the rest. Um, you know, I describe firefighting to outsiders. I just tell them that, you know, well, imagine doing 16 hours of Ditch digging or logging while carrying <laughs> what you're doing. your own water and everything. And it is. It's yeah. accurate, but it also, you know, people can barely imagine it, although they can't imagine how bad it actually can be. Yeah. Um, and that's what it is. And there's not a lot of room there for adjust this carefully and then pull on these tabs. No, you're going to slam the stuff in and you're carrying chainsaws with it. Oh, yeah. Or Drip torches or, you know, horrible stuff. (laughs) Saw files. You know what a saw file does to a, you know, a single layer of Kadura? It drills right through it. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, you guys got problems. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes. Fusees. Yeah, fusees. And and, and being able to deploy a shelter and then getting into the whole mythology of shelters. Yeah. And, uh, you know, yeah. if, if you see, and there's always something new to learn. It is fascinating. Huh. So I didn't know that it came from the LP originally. Originally, yeah. Yeah, that's wild. Um, we ended up sending samples back and forth like three times. And then we built 70 of them for the LP. And they used them a season. And when they came back, there was more survey tape. <laughs> and some of my favorite ideas sucked. Ooh, uh, <laughs> there you go. But at least hey, at least you could take criticism and feedback. Oh, then. hell yes. Yeah. You know. Because I know a lot of people that aren't really apt to taking that, you know. Well, there's a lot of people, especially people who are just getting started. And they don't know how cheap an idea actually is. Uh, ideas are cheap. Implementation is everything. Yeah. And I have a lot of ideas. Um, but 
you know, people are interested in results. They are not interested in your wonderful gem-like object that you don't want any criticism on. Yeah. Well, it's that form over function thing, you know, or function over form rather, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So we did the redesign, which I did some things that I didn't want to do the first time around. And essentially came up with what is the uh, the uh, the hot top, and over the next few years we kept on modifying rapidly, but when you know the next set went out to uh, Los Padres again, and then some of them went to other groups, and we started getting a few groups wanting it and willing to pay the price because it's stuff isn't cheap no it's not cheap but then again if you're buying a shitty pack that's gonna yeah. break in a year yeah what's the point you're just throwing money in well the part of it is also especially from the mill side we know things break mm-hmm. i mean there there is no design it so tough that it will never break Come on, you guys are way too good at that. Oh, yeah. So (laughs) a Marine buddy of mine, he actually told me this joke about Marines. He says, "Okay, you can lock a Marine in a in a room with no windows, Mm -hmm. no way out. You can lock them in there with the brick. What's going to happen to the brick? They'll break the brick. It's either going to get broken, Mm -hmm. lost or pregnant. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much true. Yes. (laughs) Same thing goes with firefighters. And uh so then we kept developing it. But part of the key is the intelligent selection of customers. Um, you know, we could be, we've done this stuff for disc golfers. And <laughs> Are you kidding me? Wait, disc golfers, really? That's another not very long, boring story. But there is a company called Pound uh-huh. that makes disc golf packs. And it's owned by a gentleman named of Levi Buckingham, who worked here for probably seven or eight years. And uh, we did actually modify the hot top pack into becoming a disc golfers pack, too. No shit. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> it went crazy. It was wonderful. But then what was truly needed turned into something else. Levi was the only rancher who was truly committed to disc golf. And he left with my blessings and started his own company. And it's pretty cool. That's awesome. But it's just disc golf. That's it. It's successful in terms of providing a living for a couple of people. Shit, as long as he's happy. That's awesome. And it's an awesome pack. Yeah. Good on him. That's cool. Yeah. Um, But it wasn't enough to be worth it for us to carry it as its own specialty. Gotcha. And sometimes the business part of things isn't a romantic, wonderful story every time. But he was able to take it and do good things with it. And hats off to him. Yeah. Kudos to him. That's pretty badass. Yep. They're out of Portland, Oregon. And that's like uh, the disc golf capital of the world. Well, there's several. And I got to disc golf at a uh, reasonably uh, challenging level for a few years myself. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Until they shut down uh, Lindley Park because they didn't want us damaging the trees. (laughs) Just plugging away, smacking them with discs and shit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But getting back to fire stuff, uh, B-Tai came to work with us. Mm -hmm. And 
I mean, this is something that was worthwhile to become fanatic about. Yeah. Okay. You guys had serious problems. You're doing serious stuff. We... Look up to you a great deal. Oh, man. And anything that we can do to make it somewhat better is a great thing for us to do. Oh, and make a few bucks. <laughs> well, thank you for that, though. I mean, you're obviously very passionate about it. Oh, yeah. That's that's awesome. And it's the same on the military side. Uh one of the things that goes on with everybody who works here is they know that what they do matters. Yeah. Well, it makes a huge difference in our lives. Mm -hmm. That's the thing. It's, yeah. it's important to us that yeah. things like this exist and that you're actually passionate about it. You're not out to make a buck. Well, do you I mean, realize you are, what a luxury it is to know that what you're doing matters to somebody? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, that's definitely, yeah. We're it's here. a two-way street there. It's <laughs> definitely a two-way street there because we definitely appreciate what you guys are doing for us. Mm -hmm. I mean, you guys have basically supported the fire community and continue to support the fire community and the military community. Yeah. And yeah, it's awesome. Like, like talking with Lucas and discussing this whole Backbone series and the 1039 scholarship mm -hmm. fund, that's, that's fucking incredible. Well, it matters. It also matters improving the conditions of your employment. Yeah. No, it's definitely hard work out there. And, you know, any little, any little thing to make it better definitely helps. It goes a long way. Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, we're there. This is part of our identity. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I've never fought a fire, but uh, we've had a fair number of firefighters, seasonals here. Yeah. Uh, spending their winter uh, sewing packs. Um, and so we've gotten to also see what living the life entails. It's a hard and life. It is a hard life and it's got to get better. Yeah. So we involve a little bit on the political side because, well, when we were uh, just doing military, uh, here we are in Montana with two senators, just like everybody else. Yeah. But we get to know them. Well, it's a small community. It's a small population base. Yeah. 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 And you, so, I know you're good friends with, uh, Senator Danes, right? Um, yeah. You know, we've encountered each other a fair amount. Yeah. Uh, a few other people as well. And, uh, you know, Senator Tester is a cool guy too. Um, so we do what we can. Yeah. And uh, it's interesting being big enough to play on a significant level at times. Well, it's a good thing, though, that you're that big. You've made that success to the point to where you can have influence in a community like that. That's if, if that is something important or you can bring it to bear at the right time or for the right thing. OK, why not? Yeah. No, it means a shit ton to us. Yep. And I'm sure it means a shit ton to the military as well. It does. So, I mean, what the hell is a woods hippie from <laughs> Boston doing these things? Well, you know, it gives meaning to life. Yeah. And that's the whole thing is finding that passion and finding that meaning. That's critical, man. That's, that's for anybody. 
Uh, yeah. So. It's going to crack another beer. Yeah. Thank you to Map. Map Brewing Company, Bozeman, Montana. Yep. There you go. You get a freebie. Shameless plug. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Did you, you had a joke about that as the uh, Mystery Ranch after party. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's right down the street. Well, yeah. They're about a quarter mile away. Yeah. And they got some good, good beer. And yeah. That is food. the thing. You know, something that blows me away is the incredible proliferation of breweries. Especially here. Oh, especially here. Yeah. But here is the really hard truth. And it's something called Sturgeon's Law. Sturgeon's Law. I'm not familiar. Yeah. Third, Theodore Sturgeon. He was a uh, writer for TV and science fiction in the 50s and 60s. Did a lot of Twilight Zone stuff. Yeah. Et cetera. But his formulation was 90% of everything is shit. <laughs> Oh man! To some degree, it's true. Not everybody can be the best. True, and then you have you got your standouts, of course, in the beer oh, world. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Oh, yes, especially in the beer world. Yep. Yeah, but uh, yeah, we'll see. I mean, the incredible proliferation means not every one of them is going to be great. True. Yeah. Well, it's just like Bend, you know, you, had, you could throw a rock in any direction and hit a brewery, a microbrewery of some sort. Yep. And uh, there's going to be a few that are, well, okay, here's the other thing. And it's one of my favorite beer glasses. We've gotten through the years to do lots of different beer glasses. And uh, my favorite saying there is beer, not art. <laughs> That's a good one. Yep. Keep it simple, right? But yeah, I was like uh, trying to come up with like the way to describe Bozeman here. And I think it's pretty apt. It's like you take Bend, Oregon and you take Boise, make them have a sweet love child in Montana. (laughs) Could be. I've been to Bend a bunch of times and I have a son living in Boise. Um, It's it's not as bad as some. (laughs) True. No, it's awesome here. But so... As far as you, you personally, as Dana Gleason, the man, the myth, the legend himself, (laughs) what fuels your passion? Doing something that matters. So everything we've been talking about. Oh, yeah. It's just like this culmination. I am having the time of my life. Okay. I get people asking me. I'm 68. I get people asking me, what are you going to do when you retire? Why the I retired once? I was no good at it. It's <laughs> just too busy. Instead, I've in, helped create, helped create something that does great stuff for several groups of great people. Plus, we get to do stuff that sells in Japan, in Korea, in Germany, in England. And I get to go those places. That's cool. And I get to go benefit. those places. Every year or two years. And there's a bunch of people that think, well, look at what you've done. Well, yes, I've done a lot of the original design here and it's great. But as for my side of the business, which has been the design, the sales, marketing, God help us. (laughs) I have people doing all of that who are better than I ever was. And I get to hang around them. Yeah. It's so cool. 
You get to learn a lot too. I mean, well, they get to learn a little too, but yeah. I get I get to continue learning a lot. We've done different things at times where we've learned huge amounts and not gone forward. Um, we've spared you uh, Mystery Ranch uh, or Lorica body armor. <laughs> you guys are going into the body armor. No, we, we looked very hard for a number of years. Gotcha. And came to the conclusion that uh, it's an important stuff, but it becomes commodity very quickly. And observationally speaking, and I go, I'm going to regret saying this, a lot of people who go into the armor business become assholes. <laughs> I don't know why. But, it's probably the culture. Uh, it's probably a high likelihood I would too. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it just, we, we discovered that there was kind of a dividing line there. Um, when we were doing just the mission side up through 2010 or 11, before we really started getting back into outdoor gear and hunting gear too, it looked pretty seriously like we should be getting into armor and certain systems level stuff, mm -hmm. integrating communications, navigation, power on the soldier himself through the body armor layer. And we did a lot of design work there. We subcontracted for Raytheon and something called Land Warrior System. Mm -hmm. uh, we did a lot of work. We had a pilot production facility and testing equipment to doing uh, hard body armor. We wanted to make a difference. Turns out we could make very good stuff, but the basic technology we were trying to use was probably not going to turn out the very best in the world. And we came to a decision while helping develop or distribute some extremely interesting buckles that you could pass power and data through. Oh, no shit. Oh, no shit. So that uh, you could set up your plate carrier so that you had what we call a clean exit interface, as opposed to dumping into a, uh, a, a drainage ditch in Iraq and drowning, uh, being able to get rid of it all and still have your comms gear your nav gear, your power. All the shit that's going to keep you alive. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but still, you can shed that stuff in case you... Yeah. Like, well, that also yeah. came into dealing with different military directorates. And... That's got to be a hard landscape. It's extraordinarily hard. Yeah. To navigate that landscape. Know, they're in theory looking for lighter, faster, better. But in reality, there's a lot of built up barnacles of bureaucracy there. And that's life. And everybody thinks they're doing good. It's not that anybody is, you know, laughing evilly and rubbing their hands and et cetera. But there's a lot of people who, you know, figure how they've, uh, you know, allowed it to get done is the pathway they want to take. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. And in the military side, actual military people get into a job for, if they're officers, maximum of two years at a time. And then they're moved on to something else because that's part of how the military determines that 
people grow or get better or get let go. Yeah. But people on the government civilian employee side end up getting into positions where they're there forever. Just kind of stagnate. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you you pick your battles. And we did a, a number of interesting things, but would have had to sell it to one of the major contractors or something. And uh, frankly speaking, we were uh, growing the backpack business way too fast for that to be the future of the company. Gotcha. You just had no interest in dealing with that at all. Well, right? I well, had some bit. interest and we did for a while, but we would have had to concentrate on that gotcha. to take it anywhere. It wasn't worth the sacrifice. Um, I'm having a great time building, you know, load bearing gear as opposed to becoming a system level uh, subcontractor. Yeah. And that's life. Huh. You pick your battles. Amen to that. Hey, you know what? I have a ton of fun working in the fire world. It's it's the stuff we get to observe, stand back at. I mean, you know, I'm I'm you can say I'm talking shit right now, mm-hmm. but you know, observing how things go on and how the different groups interact, um, you know, it's really interesting. The smoke jumpers utilize a older technology, but they're magnificent. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, these, these crazy assholes jump out of planes into forest, into fires. forests. Yeah. Fuck the forest fire. They jump into forests. <laughs> There's a lot of it's shit insane. that can happen on the, on the way down. Yeah. And with almost all their essential survival equipment on them. Oh yeah. It's amazing. And then they pack all their stuff including the tools that are dropped out themselves in a lot of cases. Oh, yeah. This is insane stuff. They are, uh, you know, remarkable. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, talk about the special forces. I mean, they're the special forces of fire, yeah. essentially. Well, the way I look at it, a lot of you guys are SF. They're the SEALs. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> no, yeah, it's. Uh, I, I know a few of them with a screenplay, too. <laughs> <laughs> no, our jumpers are good dudes. Yep. Yeah. Although I like to harass them every once in a while. Absolutely. <laughs> it's not like they don't give it back in spades. Exactly right. You know, I get to observe this stuff and I get to see what's actually going on. Yeah. And I get to. I've gotten to solve a certain number of problems, and I now facilitate some really great people like John Bachman mm-hmm. solving those problems. And it's amazing. We have other interesting things going on. We're the only country in the world that is absolutely fixated on fire shelters. This is true. Now, we can get into the whole fire shelter subject because they are not freaking adequate. There is that. Yeah. But if you ended up with something that was adequate that doubled the weight, you would not be making people safer. You'd be making them slower and more injury prone. Less efficient. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've looked into this and there are certain deep research level material problems you have to deal with because practically anything that could deal with a thousand degrees 
as opposed to 500, is most likely going to be giving off much worse toxic crap as it outgasses. Yeah, it's outgassing. And yeah. uh, it's an extremely interesting set of problems. But frankly, the folk uh, in, New, in North Carolina uh, at the university, I forget the one, that is a, a serious fire or a serious fabric specialty, mm-hmm. they're probably way better off uh, positioned to do something about it than we are. To tackle that subject. Yeah, I mean, we've yeah. looked into things like materials that are designed to enclose a lithium ion battery fire. And that does the temperature nicely, but man, the crap it house gases. I wouldn't want to be breathing that shit. No. Yeah. No, it'd be a different way of dying. But the other side of it is every other country hasn't had our slope experiences that led to the semi-religious adoption of fire shelters. (sighs) Yeah. It's one of those things where uh, we carry these fire shelters. It's a talisman. It is. Um, it saves a certain number of people. But yeah, man, if you have to deploy. Um, it saves a, a re, I mean, if you have to deploy, you're still more likely to survive than not. Yeah. But it entails a lot of other things, including you're going to do all your work with your load on. The Canadians, the Australians, the French, the Portuguese think we're crazy. Yeah, no one else carries these fire shelters. It, well, the the biggest beef that I have with a fire shelter is that it allows more risk. It gives you that. Yes. That's that's the biggest beef that I have with it. Is it it it's a life saving device. There's no two ways around it that. Is. And I'm not. But I'm, I, I am not promoting going without. I think it's a good thing. Yeah. But there are other ways of doing things, and quite frankly, we are reaching out and looking at how other groups of people operate. If you don't have to operate with a fire shelter, you can take your pack off when you work. Think about that. Ah, There we go. Yeah. I mean, so we are working on things that are optimized for those people down the line as well. Because our way of doing it is not the absolute only way of doing it. No, there's many ways of doing it. Such interesting problems. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that whole, I mean, I I don't know if it's like a subconscious thing for me, but I don't know if I'd take the same amount of risk if I didn't have a fire shelter. Yeah. Yeah. And we do what we need to do. Yeah. Um, Fire's got to get put out at the end of the day. Yep. Yeah. And if we can do it so there's less material to start, that's important stuff as well. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, that we... There's there's tons I don't know. Well, yeah, but there's a certain amount you can observe and think about and go, how could this be done better? And that's the golden ticket right there. Constantly do it better. Yes. Yeah, that's the ultimate goal. Yep. Speaking of goals, what's what's the future of Mystery Ranch look like? Oh, we're gonna conquer the world. (laughs) (laughs) If if you piggy in the brain, if you aren't growing, you're dying. True. And we have gotten to do some very interesting things and will continue to. But, uh, you know, many companies 
do one thing for one group of people, but start doing more and more things. Kind like branch out. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Should we be doing a Kevlar shirt? Should we be uh, using some of the FR materials that have been developed on the military side to produce more comfortable clothing? Possibly we should. But we're a company that does load bearing and is at the outside edge of what can be done and make a real difference. We have chosen to do that thing for other groups of people as well. Um, so we, we what we call being a product-based company instead of a market-based company. Yeah. And you know what? We're pretty damn good at building packs. I think we'll stick with that for a few more years at least. Stick with what you're good at and make it better. Yeah. And make it better for larger groups of people. Yeah. No, that's awesome. Well, damn. I mean, we just got the complete history of Mystery no. Ranch. There's well, so many condensed. more long, boring stories, man. <laughs> All right. The abridged version. How about that? Okay. <laughs> well, you know, it, it, and to me that I've been able to do this for a lifetime mm -hmm. is... I can't imagine a better life. Yeah. And that's something to hang your hat on is that pride in your work and happiness at the end of the day. Oh yeah. That's rare to find. That's super rare to find. That's called being a rancher. <laughs> there we go. That's awesome, man. Well, Dana. So first off, I want to say thank you so much for everything you've done and what you continue to do for the fire community definitely means a lot to us. Mm -hmm. And once again, thank you so much for having me and hosting me here at the ranch in lovely Bozeman, Montana. It's been a blast, man. Cool. Eye opening is eye opening as fuck. <laughs> it doesn't suck. I'll tell you that. <laughs> Ain't that the truth? <laughs> Looks like fun, man. All right. But yeah. So where can we get a hold of you? Um, basically, uh, here at mystery ranch. Okay. Uh, yeah. Okay, I'll give you the super secret uh, email address. Uh-oh. Daner, D-A-N-E-R, at mysteryranch.com. Oh, man, that's like the private email server. <laughs> it's the secret stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and then at the end of the show, what I like to do is offer the opportunity for you to give a shout out to a, a homie, a hero, a mentor. Who do you got for us? Could be multiple people. <sighs> Take it away. You've met a bunch of them, um, but, uh, you know, John Bachman is is uh, amazingly good to work with. I love him. He's a good dude. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Lucas is uh, only the second person we've had as our, our homeboy <laughs> in the fire world. Yeah. And he has brought a whole new level of understanding on how fires are fought and, uh, you know, how the human relationships, uh, go on. Mm -hmm. Um, Christine is, uh, you know, then awesome as is Liz at uh, the things they do. Here is the thing. I fully accept that, you know, I have, had some talents and done some cool things, but I love working with people who are smarter than I am. Mm -hmm. 
mind you, I love working with people that are prettier than I am too. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, this company that we have managed to assemble and assemble with a lot of them from simply hiring them to build the packs. And then as they have the opportunity to learn more and do more and move on within the company, it's a freaking awesome privilege. Yeah. Um, I do want to give a big shout out to uh, my three kids. Um, and they're great. Um, and, uh, yeah. Oh God, I'm going to get myself in trouble now. <laughs> anyway, Claire is great on getting stuff built. Mm -hmm. Paul is, uh, pretty awesome as a designer. He lives out in Boise and, uh, is able to operate at a distance. Um, the person whose fault much of this is my daughter, Alice and mother of my first two grandchildren and Aww. her husband, Ruben, uh, are up out of Helena working uh, out of the state house, uh, doing something I thought I would never be able to say, which is some awesomely interesting government work. Mm -hmm. And uh, my son, Dana Three, who has gone on from being a designer and many other things over the last 18 years to he is now what we call the product manager for the outdoor and the hunting groups of things, which means what we are building and what we are sending to people is uh, on that side of the business entirely his responsibility. And uh, I look at the job he's doing and I stand back and uh, I am a lucky, lucky man to have these people doing these things. Um, let's just say I'm a lucky man with, uh, with at least enough smarts to realize it. It's blessings, man. Yep. That's for damn sure. Yeah. And the groups of people we get to work for. Again, it's freaking awesome. If we didn't have these challenges, we would not be able to rise to them. And it would be a much less interesting world. Amen to that. Well, shit, man. Well, thank you. Dana, thank you so much. And cheers from these amazing beers here. Yep. Yeah. And yeah, that was, that was an epic episode. We were rolling for two hours and 16 minutes. Uh, I told you they'd be long, boring stories. <laughs> no, I love it, man. No, it's good because uh, I think people really want to get to know what happens behind the, the mm -hmm. scenes at ranch at the ranch. And uh, I definitely appreciate the opportunity to do that. Well, thank you much. It's been a pleasure. Hell yeah, Dana. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Right, there we go. Ladies and gentlemen, another episode of the Anchor Point Podcast is in the books with the man, the myth, the legend himself, Mr. Dana Gleason. Dana, thank you so much for coming on the show. And uh, thank you even more for inviting me up there to good old Bozeman, Montana, and giving me the, uh, the, the entire story about how Mystery Ranch came to be. It's pretty uh, inspiring, man. I think uh, one of the biggest lessons out of there is uh, out of this whole episode is to follow your passions all your dreams and if you first you don't succeed well keep trying until you make it 
a lot of valuable lessons out of this. And uh, yeah, thank you for sharing all of this information with the fire community. I, I definitely appreciate it. Anyways, I hope you guys enjoyed the show. And uh, yeah, that wraps up the Mystery Ranch series. So if you guys are looking for those Backbone Series scholarships, or if you want to be a contributor to the Backbone Series, well, go over to www.mysteryranch.com and check them out. Hope everybody had a very thankful Thanksgiving. And we just got uh, more holidays right around the corner here. So buckle up. It's going to be a fun one. And uh, yeah, make sure you guys take uh, guys and girls take the time to, you know, talk to your fire family and uh, make sure that everybody's doing well. So it's a long season and uh, spring is just around the corner. So with that being said, make sure you guys take care of yourselves and take care of each other. Special shout out to our sponsors. Of course, we got Mystery Ranch. They are the purveyors of the finest load bearing equipment in the world. And I just want to give a uh, special shout out to those guys and thank everybody over at the ranch for having me up during this whole endeavor and for having my back through the entire thing, almost from its inception. Uh, it's It's been wonderful to work with you guys and I deeply, deeply am appreciative of this whole thing. So once again, guys and girls, <laughs> thank you so much. We got Manscaped, of course, the finest ball trimmers in the entire world. And if you guys want to go find out more, go to www.manscaped.com and enter code anchor point, all one word at checkout for 20% off and free shipping site-wide. We've got the Smoky Generation. Bethany, you have a kick-ass organization going on over there. And uh, yeah, I hope everything just keeps rolling for many, many years to come. It's definitely awesome. We've got, of course, the ass movement. We got Booze over there slinging his turd trowels and propaganda of burying turds across the planet, which is, well, it's thankless, but hey, someone's got to do it, and I applaud you for doing that. And last but not least, we got Hotshot Brewery. Well, I can't say your name on the air yet because you don't want to go public with your identity. But hey, man, thanks for everything you do for for the Anchor Point podcast and the rest of the fire community. You guys know the drill. Thanks for tuning in. Have fun. Stay safe. Stay savage. Peace. <laughs>